first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the parts of the land, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of oil will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for upstairs. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I told you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve who replied, one who did spread into the bowl with me. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine till that day. Uh, it's really great to be with you today at this EU public meeting. Uh, let me share with you a little sign I saw recently that I saw on Parramatta Road when I was stuck in traffic last week. It's from Cadbury, and I don't know if you can read it up the back. It says, don't forget the grown-ups this Easter. Uh, for Cadbury, it's a very clever marketing ploy to try and get us buying into the commercialization of Easter, buying chocolate not just for the kids, but for us and for adults as well. But it did give me some pause for thought, how we easily relegate Easter to the stuff of kids' fables and myths, bunnies and eggs and chocolates. We sentimentalize Easter, I think, to make it maybe more palatable to our 21st century sensibilities. Easter, we tell ourselves, is a time for fresh beginnings and new starts. And who, who really can't get around that? I mean, even in Australia, where the symbolism doesn't quite work because we're in autumn and not spring, the longing for a fresh start is so universal that we're able to put aside the hemispheric bias of the symbols. We all want a fresh start. The symbols of Easter, eggs and hairs and so on, evoke meanings of new life and new possibilities. And they're good connotations, really. But amidst the, the four-day weekend and the hot cross buns and the giant rabbits and the internet conspiracies about pagan goddesses, maybe we shouldn't be too quick to write Easter off as belonging to that realm of people who haven't yet learned that two fairies don't exist. Let's not allow the symbolism of Easter to run away from the heart of Easter. To do otherwise would be to mock Easter with metaphor and analogy, reducing the history and gravity of Easter into an inspirational parable. Because before Easter was a symbol, before Easter even was a festival, Easter was a series of events that happened in time and space involving real, complicated, fascinating people.
a cast of characters that we've become very familiar with over the years. Pontius Pilate and Judas Iscariot, Barabbas and Caiaphas. And there at the beating heart of those events is Jesus of Nazareth and his death on the cross. So let's step back for a moment from the Easter eggs and the hat parades. Let's forget about the chocolate bunnies and the cream eggs. Let's remember that Easter is for adults too. And the question that I want us to consider today as adults is what did Jesus think was happening that very first Easter? Why did Jesus die? Because a lot of work has been done over the years to explain Jesus' death from political perspectives. It's easy to see how Jesus found himself caught in a perfect storm of colonial and imperial politics, trapped on one hand by the Roman authorities who needed to maintain the tenuous Pax Romana, the Roman peace, in this tumultuous hotspot of their empire. And then on the other hand, the elite conservatives based in Jerusalem who were desperately trying to maintain their position of power. And modern scholarship has also been beguiled by this question, why did Jesus die? German scholars, particularly at the start of the 20th century, tried to understand how the death of Jesus could lead to a birth of a movement which overtook the Roman Empire within three centuries. In their conclusion, Jesus' death was an unexpected accident, a noble death perhaps, maybe inspiring, but probably a deluded mistake nonetheless. Was Jesus' death the result of his threat to imperial order? Was he a danger to the status quo? Is he really just another failed crazy prophet? Then and now there have been lots of reasons, lots of explanations given for why Jesus died. But for Jesus himself, what was going on inside his head? What did he think was happening? It's curious that for all the attempts to explain why Jesus died, not many people have thought to stop and consider things from Jesus' point of view. How did Jesus understand his own death? And the earliest extensive sources we have reveal a lot, actually, about this question. Instead of a mistaken, deluded, failed prophet, the gospel according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all seem to indicate that Jesus knew very well that he was facing death. And while he did fall afoul of the political machinations in Jerusalem between the conquerors and the conquered, Jesus stresses a different meaning and a deeper significance to his death. As he saw it, there was so much more to his death than a judicial murder or a martyr. As far as Jesus was concerned, the central meaning to his death was sacrifice. And we find that signaled for us in a passage which was just read from Mark 14, the account of the Last Supper. Uh, Mark alerts us to this in verse 12. He tells us that it's the festival of unleavened bread, a festival of Passover, an annual meal that commemorated a defining moment in the history of God's people. Because more than a millennium before Jesus, the Israelites had lived in Egypt, trapped in miserable slavery. And after sending many plagues on Egypt, 
to loosen the Egyptian grip, grip on power, God sent his final plague, a devastating blow. He unsheathed his sword of justice, and this justice would fall on everyone. It wouldn't pass over the Jews just because they were Jews. In every home in Egypt, of Jews and Egyptians alike, someone would die under this justice. And the only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's provision. You had to take a lamb and slay it and splash the blood of that lamb over the front of your doors as a sign of your faith in God that he would provide a way out for you. In every home that night, there would be either a dead child or a dead lamb. And when justice came, it would either fall on your family or it would fall on the lamb that you had substituted for yourself. And if you did take shelter under that lamb, death passed over you and you were saved. And every year since that first Passover, the Jews had celebrated this moment of liberation. They were free from slavery, free from, free from tyranny in Egypt, but they were also, also rescued from death because of the sacrifice of that lamb. Each year at Passover, there was a dinner which was organized in a very particular way to remind the participants about these truths. At four points in the meal, the person presiding over the dinner would stand, cup of wine in hand, and recall God's promises. We find those promises in Exodus 6, where God makes four promises concerning Israel about Egypt, four promises which conveniently for us all begin with the letter R, redemption from slavery, release from oppression, rescue by God's mighty power, and restored relationship with God. And the hope of these promises was so weighty for the Jews that they held on to them year after year. If we tried to plot them onto our 2019 calendar, the Feast of Passover, I think, will carry the solemnity and the stories of liberation and sacrifice that we feel every April at Anzac Day, combined with the family kind of feels we get at Christmas or Thanksgiving. Because this was a moment to gather with your family round the table, to hear these stories that you had heard every year since you were a child, as you broke the bread and drank the wine and plunged into the lamb, maybe you might just start to imagine what it would look like to live perfectly free, without injustice or oppression, without anxiety or shame, without the fear of death and the sting of sin, which we feel in every relationship, because the Jews, ever since that release from Egypt, still experienced all these things. And in fact, while you're sitting there at that dinner with your nearest and dearest gathered around you, you might even begin to entertain the notion, quietly in your mind, ever so slightly, could it happen this year? Could we be finally free of death and shame and guilt and sin? It's significant, I think, for us that Jesus doesn't celebrate his final Passover with his biological family. That's what you're meant to do. Instead, he's in Jerusalem with his 12 disciples. He's taken them out of their own family context. And Jesus goes to great lengths to ensure that this final meal 
would not be interrupted. The way Mark has written it, it reads like a, a covert operation. Go into the city, Jesus tells two of his disciples, and you'll meet an unnamed man carrying a water jar, and he'll show you the place to go. And it's really quite secretive. Jesus is trying to preserve the security of this meal. Because in the Gospels, we read that Jesus knew that his hour had come, that this elaborate trap laid by his enemies was springing into action around him, and his death was fast approaching. Jesus had set aside this one last time with the twelve, one last time to be with them, one last time to tell them what he most wanted to say to them. Uh, For us, there are many elements in this meal that we might be very familiar with, either because of church or school or because a history in Western art. But I want you to imagine for a moment the shock of the disciples when in the middle of this meal that they've celebrated every year of their life, Jesus suddenly and dramatically departs from the script. Verse 22 says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Because ordinarily at this moment, the person presiding over the meal would say something commemorating Israel's time in the wilderness, commemorating God's promises to his people. They would say something like, This is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the desert. That was the standard kind of liturgical formula trying to recall Israel's imagination back to their time of the Exodus. But here Jesus says something entirely different. This is my body. And I think what he's saying is something like, this is the body of my affliction, my suffering. Because he's leading a new Exodus, the ultimate Exodus, this ultimate exit from slavery and death and bringing about the ultimate deliverance. And if you were a disciple at this moment, you would be totally shook. But Jesus continues. Mark says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Jesus said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink from, again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my blood, he says. My blood. It's Jesus' own death which makes this new, greater exodus possible. And when Jesus says in verse 25 that I won't drink again from the fruit of the vine, his disciples would have heard that as some sort of promise or oath or covenant. It's like when we say, I'm going to do this even if it kills me. Jesus knows that his death is imminent, and yet he's promising that he's totally committed to this task, to this exodus. He's totally committed to us. You see, Jesus' death is more than a dramatic, grand gesture. It's not just a FYI, hi guys, I love you. As Jesus explains his death here, it's more like an invitation that comes with an RSVP. Uh, In the Gospels, Jesus often compares having a relationship with God to enjoying a fine feast. And his death is the invitation to enjoy this feast, this 
restored relationship with God. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says that many people will come from the east and from the west, from the ends of the earth, to take their place in this feast in the kingdom of God. It's a feast that's open to everyone. They will enjoy a royal banquet with the finest wine and the choicest meat. And those promises, those promises which God had originally given to the Jews in the Exodus of release and rescue and redemption and relationship, they're all open for everyone now because of Jesus. God promises to buy us back, not from, not from Egypt, but from sin, that sin which Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn says cuts through the heart of every human. It's the sin which stops us from being who we were made to be, people who selflessly and gregariously love God and love others. And Jesus says that through his death, sin need not hold the reins on our life anymore. We can be free from the self-absorption and pride that characterizes our life, the pride, that absorption which our, with ourselves, which even drives our best intentions. Jesus promises to set us free from all of this. But in Mark's account, there's another dramatic departure from the script. Because even though the Passover feast captured something of the haste of that original generation in Egypt, when they had to eat very quickly with flat bread and bitter herbs, Passover wasn't a vegetarian meal. The main course was the sacrificial lamb. And yet none of the four Gospels mention the main course at the Last Supper. There probably would have been a lamb there for sure, but they don't mention it. What kind of Passover would be celebrated without a lamb? And maybe perhaps the reason that they don't mention it is because the Lamb of God is standing there at the table. Jesus himself was their main course. After all, in John's Gospel, early in John's Gospel, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for the previous three years of his life, Jesus has modelled himself on a character that's known to us from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah as the suffering servant. Isaiah described him this way, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. When Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood poured out. He means, I'm the one that Isaiah, I'm the one that John spoke about. I am the lamb of God, which all other lambs pointed to. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The lamb that allows you to be passed over. And I think of everything that could have gone through Jesus' mind when he died, this identity this vocation as the suffering servant of the Lamb of God, this seems to have been at the forefront of his mind. He didn't see his death as an accident or a mistake. He wasn't merely a victim of a political power play. 
He saw his own death as a willing sacrifice for our brokenness and our hard-heartedness. His death was a sacrifice freely given for all of us. And that's maybe where we encounter one of our major obstacles when we try to approach Easter as adults, this idea of sacrifice. Because I think in 2019, we think that sacrifice is what ancient, primitive people did in bloodthirsty societies to appease their bloodthirsty gods. We read an example like this in the epic story of the Iliad, that classic Greek um, story where one of the Greek leaders, leaders, Agamemnon, can't sail to Troy because he can't get fair wind. And that doesn't change until he brutally and kind of cruelly sacrifices his own daughter, whose death then, then appeases the anger of the gods, and they allow Agamemnon to sail away. What Jesus says here in Mark may seem like another version of that, a savage, backwards, ancient culture ruled by an irritable god demanding blood sacrifice. It all seems a bit fickle and unnecessary. But that's not what's going on here in Mark's gospel. Jesus doesn't die because of a capricious God. Jesus doesn't die despite God's love. He dies because of God's love. He died because of his own love. It had to be this way because all life-changing love involves sacrifice at the expense of someone else. And in spite of all our qualms about sacrifice, our stories and our lives are filled with examples of life-changing, loving sacrifice. We see this frequent, frequently with sports stars. I was looking on the website playersvoice.com.au last week, and there are dozens of stories of athletes who are where they are, they've become successful because of sacrifices made um, especially by their families. Their families have given up a lot for their success. I found this story about Cody Nikorima, an NRL player, whose parents gave up the security and money of a well-paying job in the New Zealand Army to move to Brisbane when he was a young kid because he'd started showing promise as a rugby league player. They took jobs where they were overqualified and underpaid so that their son might have an opportunity to make it in the NRL. All love, all real, life-changing love is sacrificial. And some of us are at uni today because of love like this, both experience from our families. Uh, one of the most moving recent literary examples, of course, is Lily Potter, mother of Harry Potter. In the first book of the series, when Voldemort tries to kill Harry, he discovers that he can't touch him. Every time the Voldemort-possessed villain tries to lay hands on Harry, he experiences agonizing pain and is thwarted. And when Harry later asks Dumbledore, why couldn't he touch me? Dumbledore replies, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark, not a scar, not a visible mark, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. And it's a moving account because 
We know from experience, from the mundane to the, to the dramatic, that sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And we know that anybody who has ever done anything that made a difference for us, a parent, a teacher, a mentor, a spouse, or a friend, sacrificed in some way. They stepped in and accepted some hardship so that we would not get hit with it ourselves. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, and every couple of years after a big bushfire, you'd hear um, stories from firefighters who would be out in the bush and find the charred remains of birds. It's kind of a hideous sight, but often hidden underneath the dead bird would be her babies, little chicks which had huddled under their mother's wings and survived. Instead of flying away, the mother had protected her chicks and kept them alive at the cost of her own life. And Jesus says that's what his death is for us. On the cross, Jesus got what we deserve, the sin, the guilt, the brokenness of the world, it all fell upon him. He loved us so much that he took divine justice on himself so that we could be passed over forever. With these simple gestures at the meal, holding the bread and the wine, and with these simple words, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is saying to us that all these earlier rescues, the lambs at Passover, they're all pointing to him. Just as the first Passover was kept on the night before God rescued Israel from slavery for the blood of lambs, this last Passover meal was eaten on the night before God rescued the world from sin and death for the blood of Jesus. Implicit in this blood covenant, though, is the promise that one day Jesus will once again drink from the fruit of the vine. This is the Last Supper, but there will be another meal presided over by Jesus where we will feast with him. The sacrifice by the Lamb of God opens up a future to us where we will enjoy God's presence and boundless peace. Instead of hostility and strife, we will know each other as family. Instead of need or lack, there will be satisfaction and contentment. It's a promise of deep-seated joy that comes from being rescued and redeemed and restored by God because Jesus has taken our sin and our guilt and our shame and died with him on the cross. And for 2,000 years now, Christians have in some way commemorated this Last Supper remembering Jesus' life-changing, loving sacrifice, where he substituted his place for ours. It goes by lots of various names. The Lord's Supper is one. But in celebrating it regularly, Christians have sought to remind each other that what Jesus offered in his death is available to all of us. God's presence and freedom in redemption, release and rescue and restoration is readily available to each one of us. It's an invitation to you. Jesus says in verse 22, take it. Take it. We have to take what he's doing for us. We have to receive it actively. You could have a meal piled in front of you, all the food cooked to perfection, and still starve to death if you don't touch it. You don't get the benefit of food unless you take it in and digest it. 
To be nourished by something, you have to eat it. And we could do the same with Jesus. We could just appreciate Jesus, thinking that he's kind of a cool guy, a fascinating character, an inspiring figure. But that would be the same as Instagramming an amazing meal and then never eating it. The bread that is broken in Mark 14 points to Jesus' body given for you on the cross for our sins. The wine that is poured points to the blood, Jesus' blood, that's spilled on the cross for us. You need to be nourished and sustained by Jesus. The real food that we need is Jesus' undying, unconditional love for us. That's why the bread and the wine have been central symbols for Christianity all this time because they tell us it's not about how good we are or how bad we are. It's not about how rich or poor we are. It's not about your ATAR, thank goodness. It's not about how many university medals that you win. It's not about whether you're married or single. It's not about how upright your life looks or how woke your budget is. It's all about his body and his blood. Jesus' death on the cross, which deals with the guilt and penalty and power of sin over our lives. Nothing else matters except for this. And because it's a meal, it's not something that you can simply appreciate and admire. It's not something that you can stay away from. You have to get close to it. In fact, you have to take it in and digest it. It has to be personally appropriated. You have to make it your own through faith. That's when Jesus' death is not just a historical fact, something you might read about on Wikipedia, but his death becomes his death for you, shielding you from God's just judgment on your life and rescuing and releasing and redeeming you from sin and brokenness in our world. Verses 22 to 23 record that it's Jesus who gives the bread and the wine to his disciples. He gives it to them freely without expecting anything in return. He doesn't charge them for it. And in the church that I attend, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come with empty, outstretched hands because that's all we bring to God. Our emptiness, our lack, our need. And Jesus fills us, not with the empty, tiny little morsel of bread that I get at church. He fills us with himself because the bread is a sign pointing to him. He fills us with himself, taking our need and making it his own. He takes our sin and our selfishness, the one who had never done anything wrong in his life, and he makes it his own and he deals with it forever. He takes it all the way to the cross and he kills it there so that we can share in his life and enjoy the same access to the Father that he does. And you can have this today. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us, asking God to feed us, not with bread or, and not with our teeth, but to feed us in our hearts and by faith. You can have this today because this is an invitation from Jesus for you to share in God's blessing, to be rescued and redeemed and released from sin and oppression in your life, to know God as your Father, to be set free, 
maybe that's not where you're at and I want to keep encouraging you to continue exploring what is at the heart of Christianity. So maybe keep coming back to some of the other talks that they use running this week and next week. And no matter whether you came today with a friend or on your own, it will be really worth your time to read a gospel before Easter, maybe the gospel of Mark. The EU's got plenty of copies of Mark's gospel at the moment. Read a gospel of Mark. It will only take you 90 minutes. And remember that Easter is for adults. If you haven't read one of the gospels about Jesus' life yet as an adult, you're really missing out. If you want what Jesus offers you, if you want the rescue and release and the relationship that his sacrifice brings, you can have it. So let me pray, and if you want that, feel free to pray along in your own mind with me. God, thank you for Jesus' invitation to the feast. Thank you for such love that Jesus sacrificed himself for me and took my sin to the cross. I'm sorry for my selfishness and pride. Please release and redeem and rescue me so that I might enjoy a relationship with you and call you Father like Jesus does. Amen.